pig, or sus domesticus, was introduced to the New World by the Spanish in the 16th or 17th centuries. Christopher Columbus himself released pigs into the West Indies in order to have something for future expeditions to eat. From there, the pig was possibly introduced to the mainland United States and Florida by Ponce de Leon as early as 1521. The Spanish carried the animal with them wherever they went, which includes the Southwest, and later the Mexicans and the Americans both would raise pigs wherever they set up shop. But the problem is that, like all livestock, there was always the opportunity for pigs to get loose, make it into the wild, and turn feral. Today, there's something of a real problem as feral pigs are essentially an invasive, omnivore species that disturb whole ecosystems and negatively impact not only vegetation, but other animals such as deer and turkey. One of the more fun problems is that feral pigs are just mean. Feral pigs living in the United States have been known to attack humans without provocation, no matter if they were male or female, a solitary animal, or a whole group. Between 1825 and 2012, there were more than 100 documented attacks on humans by feral pigs, resulting in five fatalities. Amateur historian Jinx Pyle described the ones in Arizona as, quote, formidable animals, big and rangy as a black bear, and bearing the temperament of a cornered badger, end quote. Then, after describing how settlers would throw coyote carcasses and other bits not suitable for the human palate to these pigs, he writes, quote, Anyone who has seen droves of wild hogs go after a carcass will testify to a bloodlust akin to that of the wolf. End quote. Just take a moment to think about how much you really would not like to have a run-in with one of these things. And then ask yourself, what kind of person would let another person's body be devoured by these foul, aggressive swine? Because that's today's golden question. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, the History of Arizona. Episode 125, The Pleasant Valley War, Part 6. The hogs have got to eat them. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we brought the Pleasant Valley War into its deadliest phase, as the search for a missing Mart Blevins led to a shootout between the Tewksbury and Graham factions at the Milton Cabin. That fight left two Graham allies in the ground and the Tewksburys on the run into the mountains. The two sides would have another small engagement in those mountains before Yavapai County Sheriff Bill Movenon arrived on the scene to sort out what had just happened. But here's the thing. Mulvinen didn't find out about the shootout at the cabin until a full week after it occurred, and then he hadn't left Prescott for three more days. In the interim, things went from bad to worse, possibly because of a horrible misunderstanding, but also possibly because the Tewksbury's determined to get some revenge. The facts, as far as we can determine them, are these. William Billy Graham who was the younger half-brother to John and Tom Graham, had by now joined them in Arizona. And at this point, he was either 17, 18, or 21, depending on who's telling the story, 
But the crux of the matter is that he's the little brother to our main characters. On August 17th, though one source says it was the 19th, Billy Graham left the homestead. There are an assortment of stories about where he was going, but many mention him trying to find some horses. An important point to keep in mind is that this is just a week after the shootout at the Middleton Ranch that killed Hamp, Blevins, and John Payne, and only six days after that same ranch had been burned in retaliation. And that's important because when Billy returned home, it was with two gunshot wounds and holding his own intestines, which were already starting to drag on the ground. Billy had been shot once in the arm and once in the bowels, and he had struggled to make it that far. One version says that he slipped from his horse at one point and gave himself up for dead, but either fearing a further ambush or that his killers would escape justice, he pushed himself onward to make it to his family. Somehow mounting his horse again, he tied his shirt in such a way to keep his bowels from spilling out, though by the time he got to the homestead, the ride had loosened the shirt knot, creating the grisly scene as he entered. These wounds proved fatal, and Billy Graham was added to the list of Pleasant Valley War casualties. But who had done this heinous deed? Two neighbors who had been in the Graham home at the time later testified to a coroner's jury that Billy had positively identified Ed Tewksbury as his killer. One of them claimed that Billy had not only identified Ed, but that Jim and John Tewksbury were with him, along with four other men. However, a third neighbor, who had also been present that day and had helped dress Billy's wounds, would give testimony that the dying man had made no such identification to him. The coroner's jury would find that Billy had died from gunshots and that Ed Tewksbury had killed him. But again, with how one of the two leading witnesses was a known Graham partisan who had actually participated in the burning of the Middleton Ranch, there is good reason to doubt the veracity of his story. It's also possible that this story of Billy being ambushed by seven men led by Ed Tewksbury was just a lie that the Grahams made up to use as a causes belli. Despite the coroner's jury's findings, Ed would never be brought up on charges of killing Billy, because someone else stepped in to claim that it was actually he that had landed the killing shot. James Houck had been born in Ohio, and at the tender age of 15, had enlisted to fight in the Civil War. Following his discharge, he had come west, and for a while he was hired as a mail rider for the army, running between Fort Wingate in New Mexico and Fort Whipple in Prescott. This was a dangerous route along the Mogollon Rim that cut across Apache country, so only someone full of grit, or maybe a little nuts, would attempt it. Hauk apparently was one or the other. By 1887, he was a deputy sheriff in Apache County, as he was a rabid Republican, but also with a reputation as a gunfighter and someone with a history of vigilantism. In the days following the death of Billy Graham, Hauk would claim that he had shot the young man, but that it had been a case of mistaken identity. According to Hauk, he actually had a warrant for the arrest of John Graham, though I can't seem to find what exactly this warrant was for. Hauk was also in the habit of learning the behaviors of the men he attempted to bring to justice, so he got intel on the daily comings and goings of John Graham and what trails might be the best place to lie in wait. Once he had this information, he picked his spot, hid behind a tree just as daylight was breaking, 
and waited for the subject of his warrant to ride up to him. Soon enough, he heard a horse coming, and he stepped out from his hiding spot, gun raised. Except instead of it being John Graham, it was Billy Graham. Everything happened in a split second. Hauk saw that it wasn't his man, so he tried to call out to Billy that he wasn't after him, but whether he heard the explanation or not, all Billy saw was an armed man jumping out of the forest, so he raised his own gun. After all, his family was at war, and people had just died less than a week ago, so of course he was on high alert for just such an occasion. Seeing that Billy was getting ready to shoot him, Hauk had no choice but to open fire to save his own life. So, according to Hauk, the young man was gunned down through a series of errors, all hinging on, basically, bad luck. But we have a few reasons to doubt the veracity of this version of events. First and foremost, Hauk was a known, active, and vocal Tewksbury partisan. In fact, Hauk would even declare later in a fit of braggadocio that he was the leader of the whole Tewksbury faction. So, if he did kill Billy Graham, it's very probable that it wasn't because of some case of mistaken identity while on a job. Secondly, amateur historian Jinx Pyle says that Hauk was actually on a sheep drive from the top of the rim to Phoenix during this time, and therefore couldn't have been in Pleasant Valley on this particular day to do the killing. Pyle's conclusion is that Hauk was providing an alibi for Ed Tewksbury, who had actually shot Billy. Though I should note that my other sources feel pretty confident saying that Hauk was there and that he'd actually fired the fatal bullets. What's incredible to me is that Sheriff Mulvenon was fully aware of this shooting after he rode into the valley in the following days. However, he didn't appear to investigate or really do anything with this latest killing, which has, ostensibly, been committed by these same men that he had come out to investigate. But before we pass too much judgment on him, we need to remember that Mulvenon and his posse were in town something on the order of 12 days, and had been more or less unsuccessful in finding the Tewksbury's who were still hiding up in the mountains. Every day was costing the county money, and Mulvenon was not getting anywhere. And it was possible that his men were feeling some very threatening vibes coming from the Graham faction, who had warned the sheriff at the outset that he had to arrest the Tewksbury's, or they would take the law into their own hands. Finally, remember, reports of his premature death were floating all around the rest of the territory. After taking all these factors into consideration, Mulvenon decided to pull up short and return to Prescott. Though he had all those factors working against him, his decision to return to the territorial capital and leave the Tewksbury's untouched was a massive failure of law enforcement. And that might have played into the Graham's thinking about what to do next. Because the day after Mulvenon and his posse arrived back in Prescott, the Grams struck back savagely. The majority of the Tewksburys were still hiding out in the Sierra Anchas. However, John Tewksbury had a wife and a young daughter whom he wanted to see, so it was decided that he and a few men would head to his father's cabin to check on the family. On the morning of September 1st, 1887, Three weeks after the shootout at the Middleton Ranch, and two weeks from the killing of Billy Graham, John Tewksbury and his business partner, William Jacobs, left the Tewksbury homestead. According to most accounts, they were trying to round up some horses, including for one Mrs. Crouch, a schoolteacher that had stayed the night at the Tewksbury cabin before continuing on to Phoenix. 
Though, by this time, I'm not sure why everyone doesn't have every single animal they own under lock and key or at least 24-7 surveillance, because nothing good in this story has ever come out of someone going out to look for horses. As the pair made their way along the rocky bottom of Cherry Creek, a Graham ambush sprang into action, with one estimate saying that there were 20 men present, including the two Graham brothers, Andy Cooper, and one of the survivors of the Middleton Ranch shootout. This group fired on the two men, who were both hit in the back and went down. Jacobs, who was shot three times in the spine, was still not as dead as they would have liked, as someone would actually bash his head repeatedly with a rock until they were sure he stopped moving. John Tewksbury went down with a shot in the neck, but was not dead immediately either, and was in horrendous pain, so much so that he actually tore chunks of his own hair out as he writhed on the ground. He was eventually shot three more times by his assailants. We also get a couple stories from this scene where Johnny Graham ran forward with a knife to actually scalp the fallen John Tewksbury. Just a few short years earlier, John Tewksbury had ridden up to Johnny Graham's ranch and slapped him full across his face inside of everyone, so this moment could have been a full retribution for that indignity. However, his brother Tom hissed at him to not be a heathen, which snapped John out of his crazed, revenge-fueled mindset. However, another version is that the man trying to do the scalping was none other than the outlaw Andy Cooper, eager for revenge against the family that had killed his brother Hamp and possibly had killed his father, Old Man Blevins. Later, Cooper would callously brag that he had killed John Tewksbury and another man that he did not know. You'll also sometimes read that Cooper suggested burning the Tewksbury cabin and all the people inside of it, but the rest of his party felt squeamish about so gruesomely killing women and children. What they did next, however, wasn't that much more magnanimous. By now, whomever was in the cabin had undoubtedly heard the gunfire and knew that something was up. So the Graham faction took up positions all around the homestead to basically put it under siege. Over the course of the day, upwards of 100 bullets were fired at the property, both for intimidation and to keep anyone from leaving. At some point, Marianne Tewksbury, John's wife, found out about his death. Some versions say that she went out to find his body before being driven back by the beginning of the siege. Another version is that the Grahams shouted it to her from their dug-in positions. Later in life, she would claim that she asked for a temporary truce in order to go and bury the bodies. However, someone, possibly Johnny Graham, shouted back, quote, No, the hogs have got to eat them, end quote. This almost inhuman line may carry deeper significance. Remember that one theory as to the disappearance of Mark Blemons was that the Tewksbury's had killed him and then let the hogs eat his corpse. If the Grahams and Blevinsons believed this, then letting those same large, ill-tempered beasts eat up John Tewksbury's body was sweet, sweet justice. And most accounts say that the hogs were able to do just this, though Marianne may have snuck out at night to try her best to cover the dead bodies with bedclothes, weighed down by the river rock she found in the creek. It wasn't much of a deterrent, but it was all she could do with the Grahams keeping anyone from going out during daytime hours to give them a proper burial. Now, I will note here that author Eduardo Obregón Pagán doubts the hog story, 
saying that the two men had been killed in a rocky area with no vegetation and no easy access to water, so it was doubtful that the hogs would have been foraging in the area. He contends that if the bodies had been chewed on, it was by normal scavengers such as coyotes. Of course, he's also thinking of domesticated pigs and not any of the feral hogs that might have been roaming the area, which is what the other sources are assuming. Also, it should be noted that Marianne was pregnant at this time, possibly in her third trimester, and the area where the bodies fell was not within sight of the cabin, so the romantic story of her going out to try and save her husband's corpse by moonlight might be mere campfire legend. The real point here is that the bodies were left out in the open, with no one allowed to see them because of the pack of armed men taking pot shots at anyone who dared open the front door. Speaking of which, this siege was not a short thing. While the actual length of time is debated among historians now, they all agree that it went on for days. Pyle says that it could have gone on for as long as nine days in total. Other sources are not willing to go that far, but do agree that the siege went on for at least two days, if not a few more. According to Pyle, during the siege, one man, John Rhodes, escaped the cabin by night, and he rode off to find Jim Tewksbury, who was still holed up in the mountains with some allies. These immediately rushed down to relieve those stuck in the cabin, while another man was sent to Payson to retrieve the local justice of the peace. Again, according to Pyle, the only person to record this part, Jim Tewksbury and his men, in tandem with Ed Tewksbury's fine gunwork from inside the cabin, were able to keep the Graham faction at bay until they finally gave up and eventually dispersed. Having been informed about these killings, Payson Justice of the Peace John Meadows arrived in Pleasant Valley about 11 days after the death of both John Tewksbury and William Jacobs. By this point, all the coroner's jury could do was try and give the putrefying corpses some semblance of a decent burial. Charles Perkins, the Pleasant Valley resident who operated a local store, joined in to help with the bodies, and he would later write, quote, It was not possible to move them. They were badly torn by the hogs, and decomposition had gone so far that burying them was a most disagreeable task. All we did was dig two very shallow graves and roll these swollen, mutilated bodies into them with our shovels. End quote. The inquest into the two men's deaths went nowhere, as most of the Tewksbury's had fled again because there was still that nasty little inconvenience of the active warrants from the Middleton Ranch shooting a few weeks earlier. The only two witnesses that testified to the jury gave sketchy testimony that just couldn't lead to a conviction. The ultimate ruling from the jury was, quote, Deceased came to death by gunshot wounds fired by parties unknown. End quote. This ambiguous declaration didn't change the fact that Ed and Jim Tewksbury knew exactly who had killed their brother and friend, and they were not going to let the Grahams or their allies get away with it. As Jim would declare loudly to Deputy Sheriff Joe McKinney, quote, No damn man can kill a brother of mine and stand guard over him for the hogs to eat him and live within a mile and a half of me. End quote. Now, one of the men that Jim was talking about, specifically Andy Cooper, had actually already met his end. No account of the Pleasant Valley War seems to be complete without the tale about how Andy came to be pushing up daisies, but... I'm actually not going to cover that right now. Instead, I'm going to wrap Cooper's death story into a future episode looking at law and order on the frontier, so 
I guess consider this a teaser for that. But we have more than enough bloodshed and gunplay to cover without going into his story just yet. Following the siege on the cabin, the Tewksburys apparently rode to Holbrook, where they stocked up on weapons, ammunition, and provisions. It was a good thing they did too, because they soon got the chance to use them. On the morning of September 17, 1887, so a little over two weeks from the killing of John Tewksbury and William Jacobs, and just days after the coroner's jury, we have our next engagement between the two sides. The Tewksburys were returning from Holbrook and had actually camped out near a spring. Jim Roberts, another staunch Tewksbury ally, was up at dawn before the rest and was starting to gather up the animals when he noticed a group of men starting to approach their position. These were all Graham partisans, but the Grahams themselves were not actually present. Roberts instantly yelled to his comrades, who of course were sleeping with their rifles, and they began firing at those approaching. In the ensuing fight, two of the men coming up on the Tewksbury's were hit. One of them actually took a bullet through the upper leg, and Ed Tewksbury would later claim that this man had turned his rump toward them and made a rude gesture, so Ed had shot him not in the upper leg, but in the caboose. The man jumped ten feet with a yelp, Ed would later say while trying his best not to laugh. The other man hit, a hashknife cowboy wouldn't you know it, was also struck in the leg which shattered bones and left him laying on the field. The Grams quickly received word of this fight and requests were sent to be able to come and claim the wounded and bury any dead. And remarkably given what had transpired with John at their cabin, the Tewksburys actually granted this request, though they made sure to keep a close eye on the Grams as they worked from a good fortified position. Roberts, who had spotted the group approaching them, was actually sore about this, and he wanted to wipe out their enemies then and there, but apparently Ed would not allow it. I don't have much more of their personal feelings than that, but it does seem like a remarkable bit of restraint given how hot feelings were running at this time, and what Ed will later be accused of. The hashknife cowboy who had been shot in the leg would actually end up dying from his injuries several days later at the Graham Ranch. And unlike the other incidents we have discussed in the war up to this point, there would be no inquest into this shooting, no official investigation of any kind. But it would be one more incident that the public would become aware of coming from this ironically named place, Pleasant Valley. Meanwhile, the fact that everyone in the territory and beyond knew all about this feud was causing Arizona something of a PR problem. Remember that territorial boosters were always trying to position Arizona as some sort of Eden, where the rocks were alive with precious metals, agriculture was as easy as snapping your fingers, and a business-friendly government was ready to make all your wildest capitalist dreams come true. For years, this image had been kept in check by the ongoing Apache Wars and the infamous Geronimo. But by 1887, Geronimo was sweltering in Florida's humidity, and so high government officials were more than ready to put that behind them and open the territory up to any American settler that wanted a piece of land and just a little bit more freedom. But then came news story after news story about shootouts and feuds, and the territorial papers ran op-eds from each of the two sides saying why the other was the one to blame for all this trouble. Then, horror of horrors, 
there were rumors that any day now, federal soldiers would be sent in to put an end to things, which was probably the worst possible thing that could happen if you wanted to show that you were a civilized territory that was ready to become a full-blown state. As author Don Dedera so poetically puts it, how could two seats in the United States Senate be offered to a populace who settled civil affairs with gunpowder? So, in early September, and I keep seeing conflicting dates, Governor Conrad Zulick called a meeting with Sheriff Mulvenin and District Attorney John Herndon. Though he spoke about several high-profile issues affecting the territory during this meeting, he soon got down to brass tacks. The rampant lawlessness that was consuming Pleasant Valley. However, author Daniel Justin Herman also points out that Zulick may have had a warped view of the entire situation. The governor seems to have regarded all of this as a straight-up good guys versus bad guys affair. That is to say that good, honest, hard-working cattlemen were being preyed upon by a hardened gang of thieves and rustlers. Which you can kind of see, provided that you drained every last ounce of complexity from the situation. It's possible that this perception had been ingrained in the governor by both the Apache County Stock Growers Association and the Mormon populace in Apache County. Both those parties had a vested interest in seeing an end to the ring of rustlers that had encircled the Blevins family and, by extension, the Grams. The Hashknife outfit had also made an enemy out of pretty much everyone who wasn't them, so it was very easy to transfer any and all blame in the Pleasant Valley War to this group that was hated by so many people. And by logical extension, then, that made the Tewksbury's the good guys in all of this. Once again, if you squint and tilt your head and ignore some things. We also shouldn't forget, like we talked about in episode 82, that Zulik was also trying to court the Mormon vote, since he was a Democrat, and that's the way most members of the church leaned in those days. So if this group of voters said that someone is bad and should be punished, you better believe that Zulik was more than willing to listen to them. Years later, Tewksbury partisans such as Jim Houck and Sam Hott both said that the governor actually promised to pardon anyone on the Tewksbury side for anything they did, up to and including murder. A contemporary newspaper account of the meeting between the governor, sheriff, and district attorney says that the initial steps the men would take remained unclear, but that doubtless some vigorous action had to be taken to stop further violence. It also says, quote, It has been proposed that the sheriffs, with a posse of 10 men each, from Yavapai, Apache, Gila, and Maricopa counties, making 40 men in all, go to the basin and search the country until every man for whom there is a warrant out is arrested. End quote. Detera says that a multi-county action had long been proposed, mainly because rustling didn't stop at the county line and most of the players in Pleasant Valley had broken the law in an adjoining county at some point or another. However, this plan went nowhere as Maricopa County in particular balked at participating. But soon after this big meeting, the word came down from Zulik for Mulvenin to take the resources he needed and march to Pleasant Valley and, this time, get the job done. On September 10th, Mulvenin, roughly nine days after getting back into town, departed Prescott to once again head for Pleasant Valley. This time, he took three deputies with him, with plans to meet up with a lot more once he got to Payson. 
It was also noted that he brought a lot more supplies with him so that no one could wait him out by hiding in the mountains again. His mission this time was to arrest anyone involved in this bloody feud, and specifically on his person, he carried a warrant for Johnny Graham. I'm going to leave off here for this week, with Mulvenon riding all determined and steely-eyed toward the lawless spot in the heart of Arizona's rugged wilderness. Join me next time for the showdown between this posse and their prey, which will only add to the Pleasant Valley War's already high body count. But you may have heard me just say next time instead of next week. I'm going to have to take next week off as we will be hosting out-of-state visitors for our family function, and being able to write and record is just not going to happen with so many guests around. However, I will be back on February 12th as we move the Pleasant Valley War toward its final chapters. I'm your host, David Rickhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.